So who gets to define the church? Who gets to say, this is who the church is, this is what the church is about? Because if you were to ask 100 people, what is the church? You may not get 100 different responses, but you're going to get dozens of different responses. For 2,000 years, the church has been God's plan A. There's no plan B. And at its best, the church has been a beautiful expression of God's grace it's, a, it's, heaven's, it's heaven's risk. Like, I mean, from the very beginning, God chose partnership with human beings to accomplish so many of God's purposes. Knowing that humans aren't going to get it right a lot of the times, yet God kept choosing partnership. And even when Jesus rose from the dead, it says all authority was given to Jesus. And what Jesus chose to do with that authority was bless the church, delegate to the church, launch the church. At its best, the church has been at the forefront of initiatives all over the world to spread the message of Jesus, to be inviting, hospitable. So many healthcare systems and hospital systems are because of the local church. Yet at its worst, the church has been the cause of wars, has killed in the name of Jesus. There's been abuse that has happened in and through the authority of the church. Sometimes churches are known more about their politics than they are their commitment to Jesus, or they're known more about what they are against and what they are for. There are times when the church has not given the world the best reputation of what it means to be the people of God, yet the church is still God's plan A. And the church was never launched by Jesus to be an experiment or a trial, or let's just see how this goes for a few dozen years or hundreds of years or a couple thousand years. Like It is still God's plan. Right To reach a whole world for Jesus. To help restore the entire world. This is God's plan. So what I want to do for the next eight weeks is just talk about the church. And let's go back to the origins of the church. Who is the church? What, what does it mean to be a unified, purpose-filled, mission-driven, vision-focused, Jesus-centered church? And the book of Acts is the best place to go to when it comes to remembering who the church is and who the church is always called to be. So open your Bibles to the book of Acts. Now, my freshman year of uh, Bible, I was in Randy Harris's Bible class, and I'll never forget it because one of the first days of class, he had us all stand up, and we had to raise our right hand, and we had to repeat after Randy. And he said, I promise, and we're having to repeat each one of these after him, I promise I will never read Luke without also reading Acts, and I will never read Acts without also reading Luke, and I will never preach Luke without also preaching Acts, and I will never preach Acts without also preaching Luke, or I will go to hell. All right, that's how he laid it out for us. Now, this is Randy's way of saying, just don't forget that Luke and Acts are held together, written by the same man with the same purpose, part one and part two. 28% of the New Testament is Luke and Acts. 28%. There's more in Luke and Acts, more content than all of Paul's letters. And Paul has a lot of the New Testament, 28% of it. Now, I want to give you just real quick, uh, if you want to read the book of Acts over the next few days, I'm going to be preaching Acts 1 through 10. Our adult Bible class is going to be working through Acts 13 through uh, 28, somewhere in there over the next eight weeks. I want to give you three ways that I think are the best ways to read the book of Acts. And one is, some people argue that for Luke and Acts, the thesis of Luke and Acts is Luke chapter 4, verse 18 and 19, when Jesus is in a synagogue and Jesus says, the Spirit of God, the Spirit of the Lord, which is a major emphasis in Luke and Acts, is the Holy Spirit. And Jesus says, the Spirit of God, and Jesus is quoting Isaiah 61. Jesus says, the Spirit of God is on me to preach good news to the poor, to bind up the brokenhearted, proclaim release to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, 
to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And some people argue that that is the thesis of Luke and Acts, where in those days you would have a lot of Jews, especially Jewish men, or Jewish men, who would pray a prayer, and history has this in written form. A prayer they would pray is, God, thank you for not making me a Gentile or a slave or a woman. And all throughout Luke and Acts, it's a reminder over and over again that the good news of Jesus is for the slave, it's for the Gentile, it's for the outsider, it's for the woman, that all people are invited into the kingdom of God. In Acts chapter 1, verse 8, some people argue that the book of Acts is best read through Acts 1 through 8, where, it's, where Jesus says, we have been called, the church has been called to be witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Because all of Luke is pointing to Jerusalem, where even in Luke chapter 9, verse 51, it says Jesus set his face to Jerusalem. He is moving to Jerusalem. All of Luke is moving to Jerusalem, and almost all of Acts is moving away from Jerusalem, not to get away from Jerusalem, but because of what has happened in Jerusalem needs to be shared with the entire world. So Luke is moving to Jerusalem, and now Acts is what has happened in Jerusalem isn't just to invite all the worlds to come to us. It's about what has happened in Jerusalem has now launched the church that is meant to go into all the world. And then in Acts chapter 2, verse 42, it's this launch of the church where the church, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, fellowship, breaking of bread, and prayer. And that's what you see throughout the rest of Acts. So this morning I want to talk some about Acts chapter 2, the launch of the church, the day of Pentecost. Whether you grew up in churches of Christ or Assembly of God or Kojic or Baptist, you have heard numerous sermons from Acts chapter 2. One of my good friends, Mike Coke, talks about when he was a teenager, he was going on a youth group trip. This would have been late 60s, maybe early 70s. He was on a youth group trip driving through the Midwest. They were on an interstate, and they were in a church bus, and their church bus didn't have the name of their church on it. And as they're driving down the interstate, they pass a church van that had Church of Christ on it. And they said they rolled down the windows, and they're like waving at them, trying to get their attention, like, hey, we're one of you, and you're one of us. And the, the people, they, they just like hit the driver's shoulder, like, get it. These people are crazy. Like, you got to go. And, and Mike and his group are in their van thinking, how can we let them know that we're one of them, and they're one of us, and we're all, you know, in the same tribe? So somebody got a piece of paper and wrote Acts chapter 2, verse 38, put it on the window, and when the other vans saw it, they started hanging out their windows saying, we're one of you and you're one of us. It's like, this is, this is like Church of Christ language, Acts 2.38. This is us. And I want to help walk us through Acts chapter 2 today. And to do it, I want you to see a couple of responses from a crowd in Acts chapter 2. In Acts chapter 2, verse 12, you have a crowd, and what it says is they're amazed and they're perplexed at what is happening. And they begin to ask a question, like, what does this mean? Like, what is going on? What's happening here? And I want to help you see that in Acts chapter 2, it's not just about a good sermon that was preached by Peter and there was a response to a sermon. There was an experience. There was something that happened. And because of that something that happened, you had all these Jews who were visiting Jerusalem or in Jerusalem who were thinking, man, what, something crazy is happening right now and I don't know what to do with this. What, what does this mean? Now, if you back up in Acts chapter 2, the first six verses, it goes like this. When the day of Pentecost came, they're all together in one place. We know it's 120 of them. 120 people who included the 11 apostles. Now there's a new apostle. And the only other people we know are there are a few women. 
We know that Jesus' mother Mary was there. We know Jesus' brothers were there. And then there are just dozens of other people we're not given the names for. But 120 of them were all together in one place. And suddenly a sound, like the blowing of a violent wind. And I want you to notice like wind and fire and some of these things that happened. Suddenly a sound, like a blowing of a violent wind, came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. And all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. And now they were staying in, they're staying in Jerusalem were God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. And when they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard their own language being spoken. Now last night... And the awakening, a worship night we have the second Saturday of every month. One thing I talked about then was sometimes we focus on 3,000 people coming to Jesus in Acts chapter 2. Yet you don't read about those thousands of people who gathered praying for an outpouring of the Holy Spirit. They were in Jerusalem for a festival. What you have in Acts chapter 1 and 2 were 120 people who were gathered to pray for an outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And sometimes it's the faith of a few that ignites the faith of masses. And you see this throughout the Bible. So don't think there were thousands of people who were on their knees praying and fasting for an outpouring of the Spirit of God and for something like we have read in Pentecost and Acts 2 to happen. They were there because this is what they did every year. They went to a festival, yet there were 120 people who Jesus had told to go into Jerusalem and you wait on the promise of the Holy Spirit to come to you from God our Father. And when that happens, you'll know what to do. It's 120 who are praying, and then revival's going to happen because 120 are with God, partnering with God, asking for the kingdom of God to come. That's the day of Pentecost. Now, I think to understand Acts 2, you need to know just a little bit about Pentecost. This is one of three festivals where especially Jewish men had to go to Jerusalem to celebrate the festival. Passover had happened 50 days before. And then Pentecost, the Feast of Weeks, was also a time when you had to go to Jerusalem. So you went to Jerusalem for Passover, you went back home. A few weeks later, you're back in Jerusalem. Now, Passover was celebrating the time when God delivered his people from Egypt. Pentecost came to be the festival that celebrated the Torah, the law that was given to the people of God up on Mount Sinai when it was given to Moses in Exodus chapter 19. So Passover was celebrating God's deliverance from Egypt. Pentecost is when people came to Jerusalem to remember and to celebrate and to retell the story of when God gave the law to the people. A law that was meant to be a law of freedom and of life and of covenant and connection to God's people. Now here's what happens in Exodus chapter 19, when the law is given to God's people, here's what you read. And tell me the similarities. Think about the similarities you see. In Exodus 19, when the law is being given to Moses and God's people, and what you just heard me read from Acts chapter 2. Here's Exodus 19, verse 16. On the morning of the third day, there was thunder and lightning with a thick cloud over the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast. And everyone in the camp trembled. And Moses led the people out of the camp to meet with God. And they stood at the foot of the mountain. Mount Sinai was covered with smoke because the Lord descended on it in fire. 
The smoke billowed up from it like smoke from a furnace, and the whole mountain trembled violently. As the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and the voice of God answered him. So for all these Jews who were gathered for Pentecost in Jerusalem, they were there to retell the story of what I just read in Exodus 19. When God descended upon a mountain and met with Moses, met with all of God's people to give them the law, and there was thunder, and there was fire, and there were these supernatural things that were happening. And now in Acts chapter 2, you have 120 people praying in a house for the Spirit of God to come, and then the Spirit of God came, and there's fire, and there's thunder, and there's noise. There's supernatural things that are happening. So if you were a Jew in Jerusalem visiting for a festival, this wasn't just a magic show that you're going to, you heard noise and you want to go see what is happening, in your mind, you're probably thinking, we are here to retell the story of God doing something supernatural and miraculous on the mountain, and now, is the same thing happening now? Like, is God doing a new thing now? So this isn't just a moment when people are in a worship service and then God hijacks the worship service to do something new. It's a festival of celebrating a time when God gave the law, the Torah, to the people to be a covenant to live into. And now, could, could a fresh thing be happening now? Now, Pentecost was a celebration. There was goodness, and there was joy, and there was generosity. These are all the things you were celebrating. We have a good God who's very generous. So part of Pentecost was also bringing some of your wheat and some of your tithes to Jerusalem to bless the poor and the needy. And this was given to them back in Leviticus chapter 23, verse 22. When you reap, then this is part of the Feast of Weeks, what came to be known as Pentecost. When you reap the harvest of your land, do not reap to the very edges of your field or gather the gatherings of your harvest. Leave them for the poor and for the foreigner residing among you. I am the Lord your God. And years later... There would be people who would go to their rabbis, not so much out of legalism, but like, okay, what does that really mean? Like, how much do we leave? Are we talking six inches, six feet? But this was part of Pentecost. So when people came to Pentecost for this festival, there was remembering what God had done and establishing a covenant. And there was also these moments of generosity, and people were prepared when they came to Jerusalem to be generous. And then this new move of God happens, where the Spirit is poured out. Now, in chapter 2, verse 12 in Acts, you have a crowd, and some people are like, what does this mean? Like, something's happening. We need to know what this means. And then the very next verse in verse 13 is, yeah, but others said, I mean, just a bunch of people have been drinking too much. They're drunk. So then Peter steps up to preach this sermon in Acts 2. And the first line is kind of comical because the first line is Peter saying, look, man, we're not drunk. It's 9 in the morning. Who drinks at 9 in the morning? Like There, there are no bars that have been given half-price half, you know, mimosas out this morning. Like Maybe he even walked in a straight line just to let people know, like, nobody's drinking. This is, we're not drunk. And then as Peter started to preach, the first thing Peter does is defend and argue and articulate about the outpouring of the Holy Spirit upon people. He doesn't begin with death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, though that will become the central focus of his message. 
he begins by using the Old Testament to defend the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. This is what God said he would do, is that the Holy Spirit would be poured out on all people. So Peter begins by talking about the Holy Spirit being poured out. Then he starts talking about death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. So when it comes to the greatest revival in the New Testament, this wasn't just about good preaching. It wasn't just about 120 people praying. It was about the Holy Spirit being poured out on people. So when you were driving to church or when you prepared, if you're virtual, you prepared to be a part of this service this morning, if you pray coming into this assembly, I don't know what your prayers were. Maybe your prayers were for your heart to be open to what God wants to do for you. Maybe your prayers were for those leading today or for me to preach and in alignment with the character and nature of God. What happened if the church would honor what happens in Acts chapter 2 where what we pray is, God, no matter what we do today, we need an outpouring of your spirit. All right, because here's the thing. I think most churches want the results of Acts chapter 2, but they don't want the bit of Pentecost or Pentecostal that comes with Acts chapter 2. We want the results of the conversion, but we don't know what to do if the Holy Spirit starts to be poured out on people. Which is why a hundred years ago or so, there were a lot of us in the evangelical world who said, okay, maybe you Pentecost and you Assembly of God people, Kojic, y'all take, y'all take the Holy Spirit because we don't know what to do with the Holy Spirit. And we'll, we'll just kind of mention the Spirit every once in a while where the Spirit is central to everything that happens in Acts chapter 2. And if there's not just a little bit of craziness that happens when we come together where people are like, okay, something's different. Something's different. Right? Then, then, then maybe we need to pray with greater faith. Like There needs to be a little craziness in who we are that's making other people say, look, there's something different about how you all are experiencing God or encountering God. What does this mean? Because their question, their question in chapter 2, verse 12 is, what does this mean? And then Peter begins to explain the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Peter begins to explain the meaning behind death, burial, and resurrection. And then by verse 37, what happens is the crowd is saying, what do we do now? Like, we're ready to respond. This crowd goes from, what does this mean? To, we're in, tell us what to do. In a way, they even interrupt Peter's sermon, which isn't the first time in the book of Acts. Peter's sermon gets interrupted because God is on the move. And boom, just like that, 3,000 people give their lives to the Lord. Now, we're not told if there were 10,000 people there and 3,000 gave their lives to the Lord or were there 3,000 there and it was 100%. All of them gave their lives to the Lord. We don't know. We just know 3,000 people surrendered to God in baptism. Repentance prepared the way for salvation and repentance prepared the way for new community. So for over a decade of my life, I'm blown away by the revival and the movement of the Spirit in Acts chapter 2, but it doesn't end just with 3,000 people surrendering their lives to the Lord. It doesn't just end with people applauding a conversion moment. It's not just that people are saved. It's what do saved people do. Acts chapter 2 doesn't end just with people being saved. It's what do saved people do. And in Acts chapter 2, verse 42, you have, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. This is what it meant to be the church. 
This is what would play out throughout the rest of the book of Acts. Jesus is center. He's a center of it all. Multi-ethnic fellowship that happens. In the book of Acts, they are not called Christians until it is a multi-ethnic church in Acts chapter 11. There's teaching of Jesus. There's fellowship. There's the breaking of bread, sacraments. There's elements, these moments that connect us to God together as a body. And there's prayer. And then in Acts chapter 2, verse 43, it goes on to explain just a little more of what this church did. And it says, they devoted themselves, in verse 42, to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, breaking of bread, prayer, and then everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. And all the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to, get, to give to anyone who had need. And every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts, and they broke bread in their homes. So they're in the temple and in homes, eating together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. This church is launched. They came to Jerusalem with hearts prepared to be generous, not knowing that the generosity would flow to them would be because they have now been drawn into another narrative. A narrative where Jesus is the center of everything. So who gets to define the church today? Because you ask people, who's the church? You can get a lot of different answers. Who and what is the church? We live in Shelby County where there are some who say that there are more local churches than there are gas stations in Shelby County. They're everywhere. Whatever kind of flavor of Christianity you want, you'll find it in Shelby County. You want a certain kind of worship service. You want a large church, a small church, a house church. Like You can find it here. And... I don't know if you've noticed this, but a lot of times churches can be really competitive with each other. Where sometimes it's not really church growth that's happening, it's just growth by transfer that's happening all throughout the city. And I don't know if you knew this, but there are some churches who don't like Sycamore View, either because we're too progressive for some, or because the stigma or the negative reputation that comes for some people with the Church of Christ being on the, on, on the sign outside of the building. So here's the posture I've chosen to take in my life and the posture I invite you to take too is that I, I root for churches wherever they are. And there's nothing more I want this morning than for Highland Church and White Station Church and Germantown Church of Christ and Germantown Baptist and Oliver Creek and Bartlett Woods and Mississippi Boulevard and New Directions Church and Northeast Side and Bellevue to experience an outpouring of the Spirit of God to where hearts are turned to Jesus, churches grow in faith, and that their communities and neighborhoods are transformed by the gospel. So one question maybe to ask is, can there be a churchless Christian? In which I think my response would be, I think there will be churchless Christians who spend eternity with God. But I can't read the New Testament and see anywhere where Jesus would endorse or affirm taking the posture in life of being a churchless Christian. And then another question to ask is, can there be a Christless church where churches go through motions 
and do a lot of the right things, but where Jesus isn't the center of it all. And what we see in Acts chapter 2 is an outpouring of the Spirit of God and a church is as unified. And in Acts chapter 2, you don't have an eldership that is created. There's no church structure that is created. I believe those things came from God, and they come just a few chapters later in the book of Acts where there begins to be structure and authority and leadership, and for good reasons in Acts 11 and Acts 15. Like, you needed authority to help the church make really big decisions about the mission of God. But in Acts 2, what happens is there is vision that is laid and mission and DNA. That is the foundation, and everything else comes from that. It's not structure first and then everything else. It's, we have to remember the foundation, the vision, the mission, the DNA, the values is always in what God has done. And trusting that the Spirit of God is still moving. And everything else comes from that. So this morning, if you're here in person or you're online and you have felt the touch of God in your life and there's a need for you to respond to salvation, to baptism, you're in need of prayer, there's a Connect card on our website. For people here, you can go to a Connect card or we have Connect centers out in both of our lobbies. And I want to invite us right now to take the bread and the cup where we are. If you're watching with us virtually, if you don't have the elements there, you can just pause and enjoy, participate in this moment with us as we think about the bread and the cup, and as we hold this, I just want you to think about today, and I want our prayers to be focused on this. We have a chance to do something in this world that cannot be done by any other organization or group of people. The local church has a chance to do something that can't be done by anyone else. The local church has a chance to unite ourselves, even through our differences, around the body and the blood of Jesus. A message has transcended 2,000 years of division and wars. A message that keeps going and will go on for eternity and something we get to participate in is a multi-ethnic, multi-generational church. May the kingdom of God come right here in this church and in Memphis, just as it is in heaven. So may we take today with gratitude in our hearts and with a commitment to be the people God has called us to be. Let's bow our heads and let's pray. God, as we take this bread and we take this cup today, may your spirit have its way in our minds and in our hearts to transform us into the image of Jesus. Through Christ we pray. Amen.